Welcome to the Vineyard Church Message of the Week. We hope you enjoy this message. For more information on this podcast or other resources, go to vineyardlive.us. To learn more about us, go to thevineyardchurch.us. know our church has had a partnership with China and Taiwan, a missions partnership for a number of years. And I've had the uh, chance to participate in a few of their trips. It's an amazing opportunity. If you ever get the chance to go, I highly recommend it. It will totally change your life. So a couple of years ago on one of these trips, we were there to do some training and equipping about a week's worth with uh, pastors and leaders from various house churches. We were doing school kingdom ministry type stuff, um, training, equipping, and Holy Spirit ministry. We get there, we get settled, we have our first day of training, and it feels kind of flat. It's like, man, this is usually really dynamic and, and, and enjoyable, and it just kind of feels like we're, we're giving this our best shot, but I'm not sure if this is really taking. And so I, when we went back to the hotel room, I, I just remember praying and being like, Lord, you know, we came all this way, it'd be really nice if there was some fruit to this. <laughs> and uh, I go to sleep. Now, the next morning when I wake up, I have a very bizarre experience. Uh, let me caveat briefly and just say this. I, I'm not the, the type of person that typically has a very transparent window into the spiritual realm. I don't see angels. I don't see demons. Like, none, none of that is like in my typical purview. But this particular morning when I woke up, you know how there's that, like, that little part where your consciousness is sort of rebooting or something? You're not really a, asleep, but you're not really fully awake either, you know? And while I'm kind of coming through this, I see in front of me a really old, uh, ancient-style-looking Chinese dragon, just his head. And it's kind of doing this. It's like, it's like getting up in my face, and it's moving in this real kind of mocking pattern, like, what's up, man? And I'm like, what? This is weird. And as it's happening, I hear in my head, I've been here for 3,000 years, and I'm not going anywhere. And then it just kind of disappears, and I wake up. Now, obviously, I come out of that experience really disoriented and confused. Like, was that real? Did I make that up? Was that kind of a last dream? Like, like what do I do with that? And so um, we didn't really have a lot of time to do much with it. We had a busy day of training to get to, so we meet with the team. They prayed for me because I was a little rattled by this. And we go off, and we have, a, a fortunately, a, a better day of training. But, of course, all day, this thing's sitting in the back of my head. I'm like, I don't know what to do with this. And so when we um, get back to the hotel, I get out my phone and I just start kind of looking around online, trying to piece, piece together, like, is there any possibility of a reality of this thing? And what I was able to piece together was this. You know, the city that we were in was uh, culturally an important city, but not politically an important city. Um, but what I discovered was 3,000 years ago, that wasn't true. 3,000 years ago, it was a very important city uh, in China. And specifically, something like, uh, I did the math, like 2,987 years prior, in that city, China moved away from an ancient monotheistic religion they used to have. They used to believe in one God. He was called the God of heaven over everything, and he was worshipped. And nearly 3,000 years ago in that very place, they began to introduce ancestor worship and emperor worship and polytheism and all of these things that moved away from something that looked a lot more like the Bible's picture. 
Goosebumps. <laughs> now, you know what I learned in that experience? Here's what I learned. When the spiritual realm starts getting real, it's really confusing. What do I do with this? I don't know what I'm supposed to do. And it's possible that that has been your experience as we've been making our way through this series, Kingdom Collision. We've been looking at the spiritual beings, both on light and dark, that you know, exist and, and are in this, this spiritual battle. And hopefully the result is that the spiritual realm has been getting more and more real to you. But it's quite likely that you're also asking the question, well, but so like, how am I a part of this thing? Like, all of that's real, all that's out there, all that's acting towards me. What am I supposed to do with this? Well, I have good news. That's exactly what we're going to talk about today as we conclude our series and we look at a new humanity. Let's pray. Jesus, you are so good and we just love you. <laughs> I, I just invite you right now, would you come and would you be our teacher today? I thank you, God, that all of this kingdom collision stuff, it's not surprising to you, it's not whatever, you have us perfectly positioned exactly where you want us in the, in the kingdom battle. And Lord, would you continue to open our eyes and today empower us to play the role that you have for us to play, God, in this kingdom collision. That's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. So let's start by asking this. What, what exactly happened in our natural plus spiritual reality with Jesus Christ? He comes, he ministers, he dies, he resurrects. How does that change the equation? Well, we're going to start by looking at the book of Ephesians, where we've been learning a lot in this series. And we're going to start with the first verses of Ephesians chapter 2, which read this as soon as I get there. Here we go. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. So Paul, writing about pre-salvation, says this. He says, guys, you were dead. Now, this is an interesting choice of words because he's obviously not talking about naturally they were dead. So what does he mean? What he means is before we're followers of Jesus, naturally we may be alive, but spiritually we're dead. And as a result of that spiritual death, we're not contributing to the course of events in the spiritual world. Here's how he says it. He goes, you were dead following the prince of the power of the air, following the course of this world. It's a bit of a grotesque uh, example, but, but maybe this illustration will clarify a little bit. Suppose you need to go somewhere. You, get, uh, you call an Uber up. You do a ride share to save a little bit of money, and so the Uber pulls up. You get in the back seat, and, and lo and behold, you pop in, and your, your co-rider is a dead body, a corpse. Gross, right? And, and, the, and the, the driver says, all right, where should we go first? Now, here's the question. How much is that corpse contributing to that decision? The answer is zero. Not at all. The corpse is following along for the ride. It's not determining the choices. It's being directed by the things that are alive. And that's exactly the state of everyone pre-Jesus Christ. We are along for the ride with the spiritual beings that are influencing the spiritual realm around us. But that's not true once we get saved. Paul continues and he says this, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, 
even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. Our salvation is a spiritual resurrection, where we're now alive both in the natural and the spiritual realms. By grace you've been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So our salvation is two things for us. It's a spiritual resurrection where now we're not just naturally alive and spiritually dead. Now we are alive in both realms. But it goes even beyond that because it's a spiritual enthronement. It's a joining Jesus in the place of his authority. And so what that means is for you and for me, what Jesus does in our natural plus spiritual reality is he deals us into the game in the spiritual realm. We're, we're just along for the ride until we get saved. And then we're no longer just along for the ride. We become critical players because we're seated with Jesus in the place of highest authority. That's what happens to us. Now, what happens to these spiritual beings in Jesus' life and ministry and so forth? Well, the language that's described, that the, the scripture uses is actually interesting. Well, well the, uh, the, the death and resurrection of Jesus is a salvation, a resurrection for us. It's described as a battle in the spiritual realm. A battle in which Jesus is ultimately victorious over all these other spiritual beings. For example, in, in Colossians 2, it says this, and I'll, I'll clarify the, the pronouns a little bit. God disarmed the rulers and authorities, those spiritual beings, disarmed them and put them to open shame, triumphing over them in Jesus. That's what, that's what Jesus does. He goes, he fights a great spiritual battle and he wins. And so that's why, you know, on the far side of the grave, he goes, hey guys, all authority in heaven and earth is now mine because I won the battle. I got the authority, okay? These are the two sides of what Jesus does in his life and his death and his resurrection. Now, we've been watching uh, these Bible project videos as we've made our way through these series. And have they been great? I've loved them. Really, really good. And so let's turn to our Bible project friends, have them take us through that and fill in a, a couple more gaps as we go. Now, humans aren't spiritual beings. In Genesis 1 and 2, they're made of the dirt like the animals. But notice that God calls humans to become something more. He elevates them to live and rule in Eden, the place where heaven and earth are one. And they're invited to eat from the tree of life. And what does that mean, to eat of the tree of life? Well, it's an image of receiving God's own eternal life into yourself. It's about a whole new kind of existence. So wait, physical beings living forever. How could that even work? Well, somehow, sharing in God's life transforms our bodies so that we can inhabit heaven and earth at the same time. And it also transforms our imagination so that we learn how to rule the world like God in the power of love. This is an amazing calling, but humanity is quickly deceived by a spiritual rebel. Yes, he lies to the humans, saying that they can rule and get eternal life on their own terms. And God exiles all of them from the garden. They're cut off from the source of true life. Evil and death now have power over us, and we live in a world of fear, self-preservation, violence. But God promises that one day a human will come to defeat evil and death at their source and to open up a new way to a reunited heaven and earth. And this promise reaches its fulfillment in Jesus. Right, when we're introduced to Jesus, he's a human, but he's also way more. Yeah, we're told that in Jesus, God and humanity have become one. 
so that he can restore the rest of humanity to its lost calling. In fact, that's what got him arrested. Well, so maybe the way of Jesus can't win over evil. But from Jesus' point of view, his coming death was actually a battle. A battle? Yeah, not against humans, but against the real enemy, the spiritual powers that enslave us through their lies. Jesus gave his life and let evil do its worst. But God's love has the power to create life, even out of death. That's what happened when Jesus rose from the dead. And the risen Jesus is human, but a new kind of human. Yeah, when Jesus' followers met him alive from the dead, he had a transformed body that could live in heaven and earth at the same time. He's like a new category of human, one that can live and rule with God forever. Jesus is the new humanity that we're called to become. Right. He said that all authority in heaven and earth belongs to him. And then he sent out his followers to announce that his eternal life is available to us now in the present. We can experience eternal life now? Well, Jesus said that eternal life is knowing this God of love so that our imaginations can be transformed as we're liberated to love God and to love our neighbor. And we trust that even if we die, God's love will transform our bodies and raise us up into the new creation. And that's how the story of the Bible ends. Yeah, the ending is a new beginning with Jesus and the new humanity ruling in a united heaven and earth together. The ending is a new beginning with Jesus and the new humanity, us, the church, ruling in a united heaven and earth together. This is, this is the ending point of Jesus's ministry, and this is why he sends us into the world. Paul writes it uh, this way in Ephesians chapter 1, talking about all these amazing things. It's, these are the incredible things that God worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, far above all these spiritual rebels, and above every name that's named, not only in this age, but the one that is to come. And he put uh, all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. He gave Jesus as the head to the body. We are now the body of Christ who is seated in heavenly places with authority over all these spiritual beings. And so we've been dealt into the fight. Now, the question that that uh, prompts, and in some sense, everything we've covered up till now is kind of review of the rest of the series. But here's the, the, the question that's turning around in my head. So how do we deal with those rulers and authorities? What do we actually do with all of this information? And this is, this is an interesting question, and it turns out that as you think about this and as we engage with it, the, the starting point is a kind of an interesting concept that may not be one that we're used to thinking about because we're not always like deeply thinking about our natural plus spiritual reality. But a concept that comes out in the scriptures repeatedly is this idea, worship empowers the activity of the spiritual realm. Worship empowers the activity of the spiritual realm. In, in Psalm 22, this is, this is the way that the, the writer of the psalm says it. Yet you are holy, talking about God, yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. Now, clearly, the psalmist is not saying, God, you're not on the throne in heaven, so we need to worship you so you can get on the throne. 
Like God's never gotten off the throne. So that's not what that psalm is saying. What it's saying is the enthronement of God in heaven is actualized on this earth as we worship him. As we worship, what's happening is our natural plus spiritual reality, there's a space that gets opened that allows the spiritual realities to flow into our natural reality. And so God's enthronement in heaven begins to take place in Israel as we worship him. This happens not only for the good spiritual powers, but also for the bad. We don't have time to go into it, but if you think of it, sometime this week, go read 2 Kings 3. There's this bizarro story that indicates how worship of a a spiritual rebel actually results in the overturning of a battle and all this stuff. It's an interesting story. Suffice it to say this, worship empowers the spiritual realm. And while Jesus has defeated these spiritual rebels, they have not be, uh, departed because they have not yet been de-worshipped. The extent to which they're still worshipped is the extent to which we are granting them a place of power, authority, and influence in our world. And so the assignment that we have is not to defeat those powers. They've already been defeated. Jesus already took care of that. He already snatched authority. They have no rightful place, but what they do have is a space that our world makes for them. And our role is to begin to eliminate that space. Now, all of this might feel kind of abstract, and so let me, let me kind of like pin this to our culture with a very uh, concrete example. And I want to talk about... Um, one of these spiritual rebels that we haven't talked about much yet in this series. We've talked about the spirit of murder. We've talked about spirit of racial supremacy, um, some other things. Uh, today, I want to talk about the, the spirit of sexual immorality and, and trace this through the last, say, 75 years of our culture. Now, I'll, I'll just say this right now. Parents, this next little part is going to be PG-13. It's not going to be lewd or anything like that. But if you're like, my kids are in here. I don't want to have that conversation yet. That's totally good. I get it. Just exit right now. But I want to talk through this and think through this because it's important that we're processing this stuff from a biblical point of view. Yeah, it's okay, guys. It's okay. All right? Okay. One of, the key, one of the key events that happens with respect to our culture in this area happens in 1953. What happens in 1953 is a University of Illinois alum named Hugh Hefner creates a magazine. Newsflash, it was actually ideated right over on campus. This is in our backyard, guys. We gotta start fighting this fight. Take it back. Hugh Hefner creates a magazine that's called Playboy. Doubtless you've heard of it. Now, pornography is not anything new. But what is new is that Playboy takes pornography into the area of not being uh, viewed pejoratively and negatively as a dirty thing, but it's actually viewed as a classy cultural thing. It makes pornography cool instead of gross. And what happens is rapidly the magazine gets all kinds of, uh, you know, exposure and readership. He starts making a lot of money. They start making more and more magazines. And we have the worship of a deity happening here that's beginning to leaven our culture. Now, worship is not just what you sing to on Sunday morning. Worship is whatever you bow down to. And so when people are are consuming this material, they're actually worshiping the spirit of sexual immorality. So this starts leavening our culture. And by the time we get to the mid and late 60s, we have the sexual revolution. Oh, big surprise. 
all the things we've been focusing on for the last decade, we now want to bring out into the open. And so we have, you know, the season of experimentation and da-da-da and all of this stuff. Well, we come into the 70s. And in the decade of the 70s, I know this isn't the only factor, but it's certainly one of them, our divorce rate triples in a decade. Wow. Well, it's almost as if you start taking sexuality out of the context of covenant, that that's going to be hard on the family. So our, our divorce rate starts spiraling through the roof. And by the time you come to the, seven, or to the 80s, what happens is now, because families hardly exist anymore, cohabitation starts to become the norm. We're going to play family without getting married. And once again, cohabitation wasn't something new, but it became normal and acceptable in this period. It moved from something that was like, oh, you shouldn't do that, to now it's on our sitcoms. Now it's, now it's in our mainstream media. This is portrayed as the normal thing to do. And you guys know that nowadays, if you don't live together before you get married, society goes, what's wrong with you? Aren't you, like, how are you going to know if this even works? It's such a stupid line of reasoning. I'm not even going to go there. <laughs> cohabitation becomes normal. Now, what's happening from a societal point of view is this. This is, the f this is kind of the final landmark of taking the biblical idea that sexuality belongs between one man and one woman in covenant and breaking that so that culturally that's not an expectation at all anymore. As we come out through the 80s into the 90s, two more things happen. With the, with the advent of the internet, pornography becomes ubiquitous. It's everywhere. And to this day, my understanding is still 25% of the internet is pornography. The stats say that 90% of men and 50% of women are viewing it monthly. 75% of our culture almost. Crazy. This thing is everywhere. You know what I see? Worship, 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 worship. At the same time, lo and behold, oh my goodness, there's a global sex trafficking industry. I wonder where that came from. How about 30 years of bowing down to this thing? And come into the 2000s, and this thing has successfully shattered the idea that sexuality and covenant belong together. So it keeps going. And the next thing that happens is it starts targeting the idea of a man and a woman. And so now every other form of sexuality becomes the cultural dialogue becomes the goal of, once again, what's in our TV shows? What gets lifted up? What gets celebrated? Trying to continue to turn the narrative. You come into the 2010s, and most of that has been pretty well settled. Now the issue is gender. Right? Are we, are we actually men or actually women? I don't know. Depends on what you think you are. Right? What's happening here? There is a successive layering of this principality where every step along the way as we worship it, it's growing more powerful and it's directing the course of our society. Unless something intervenes, I'll tell you what, what's coming up in the next 10 years is we've moved from a man and a woman together in covenant to man and woman, don't worry so much about the covenant, to men and women, somehow, to Human beings who don't even know if they're men and women. That's where we've moved. The next step is to dissociate it from human beings and to dissociate it from two. So in the next 10 years, we're going to probably have the advent of group marriages and other things that are like, I don't even know, machines or animals or something. I know that seems like repulsive. Every step along the way seemed repulsive 10 years before. 
This is the course that we're on. And you know why we're on this course? Because way back here, Jesus said something. Jesus said this, if you look at a woman with lust in your heart, you've already committed adultery. And we said, I'd rather take my magazine. We deviated where Jesus says, guys, here's where the line is where you're worshiping something else. If you look at something, someone with lust in your heart, you started worshiping another thing. You are empowering it in our culture. Now, the good news is, let me just parenthetically say this. This is like a conviction that's been growing all weekend, and I'm just going to insert this here. There's a couple of ways we could read this story, because this starts in our backyard, right? And here's the way I'm going to choose to read that story. Apparently, I didn't know it, but apparently there exists something in our community where we have the right to disciple our nation in the area of sexuality. He grabbed the ball and ran the wrong way. I'm pretty sure that means we could grab the ball and run the right way. So I just bless that. May the Lord begin to release that among us. That would be amazing. Okay. Suffice it to say, this is what it looks like as it plays out. And this is why in the Great Commission, this is the way Jesus phrases it. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. So here's what we're going to do. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Take the nations that have been following these other gods and immerse them in the ways of the true God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, how does that work? Here's the very next part, which I think is so amazing. He says, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. See, the world right now is in a war of worship. People don't, don't notice it. Like the, 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 the forces that have been advocating the sexual immorality principality, they've not been trying to worship the spirit, but they've been doing it nonetheless. And what Jesus does is he teaches us, he goes, guys, here's the way to live where you're not worshiping anything that you don't want to empower in culture. And you and I don't even actually need to get someone saved to help steer their worship away from worshiping something that's going to be disastrous for them. There's a war of worship happening, and what we get to do is show people the best way to live, and as that happens, they'll direct their worship away from these other things, and those things' influence begins to crumble. In Acts 19... There's this cool story that Paul, um, talking about Paul and his journeys and all of this. So by Acts 19, he's traveling all over the world. He's planting churches and doing this. And he gets to Ephesus. Ephesus is kind of a high point of Paul's ministry. It's probably where he has the most uh, fruitful uh, portion of his ministry. And Acts 19 details a lot of stuff that happens there. Now, the first nine verses talk about like how he got there and his, his mission strategy and all of this. We're going to kind of hop over that. But suffice it to say, here's the summary sentence of, of Paul's fruit. It says this, this continued, Paul's activity continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. That's pretty amazing. In two years... Paul manages to spread the word of the Lord to all of Asia. Now, to be clear, Asia in biblical times is not the continent that we think of when we think of Asia. It's about the western half of Turkey. Okay, so, so Paul evangelized essentially a nation in, in two years. Unbelievable. Amazing, right? 
Now, the story continues. There's an interesting little story about some deliverance stuff. And then there's a, there's a fascinating little narrative where it captures this, this situation where there's like this dispute, this, this argument about the effects of Christianity. And, and if you read it, it's, it feels really random. Why is this in here? Well, if we're tracking from the natural plus spiritual lens on reality, we'll realize Luke is, Luke is telegraphing something to us here. So here's what happens. Describing the disturbance, it says this. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. Now Artemis was a goddess that was worshipped in Ephesus. So this Demetrius is a guy, he makes little idols, basically, that people buy. Put in your house so you can worship Artemis at home or something. These he gathered together with the craftsmen in similar trades. And he said, men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. We got money because we can make statues that people want to buy. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. This is what I think is fascinating. He doesn't say Paul has gotten everybody saved and is now worshiping Jesus Christ. He says, Paul told everybody in Asia that there's no point in buying an idol because it's not really a real God. He just told them. That's, that's like one of the things that, that God talks about in, in like Deuteronomy. Don't make idols because you can't make one that really looks like me. <laughs> that's what he said. So, so Paul is just saying, guys, the best way to live is to not confuse and think that an idol is a real God. Don't make that mistake. And so he's told everyone in all of Asia this truth, and they've all stopped buying the idols. So this guy's like, man, we're, we're getting chipped. This is ridiculous. And there is danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, not only are we going to lose all our cash, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. What's the subtext? Another one bites the dust. That's what you're supposed to read between the lines. Paul took this one out. How did he take this one out? By doing the stuff. See, here's the thing. When we learn about all of this spiritual stuff, Paul doesn't roll up to Ephesus and say, Artemis, it's you and me, let's go. Paul gets involved in the lives of other people. Paul takes the things that Jesus commanded us and pours them into the people around him, whether or not even they become Christians. But the fruit of that is that those people stop worshiping these false gods, and as that happens, their influence begins to crumble. The empowering that had been given to them in that worship begins to fade away, and you know what happens? They get taken out in the spiritual fight. Another one bites the dust. And so the, the question that I have for all of us today is this. Where's a place that we can begin to roll up our sleeves and get our hands dirty? See, what Jesus modeled for us is that the way that we work redemptively in the world is not through disengagement. Jesus wasn't sitting there up in heaven saying, yeah, let's send Gabriel to take care of this. 
He steps down here. He incarnates. He gets his hands dirty and he gets involved, giving away the best that he has to the people around him. And when we do the same thing, the, the whole point of this and really this whole series is this. When we do the same thing, we're not just affecting the person's life around us. We are interacting with a spiritual realm working redemptively to manifest the authority that Jesus, has, Jesus Christ has on this planet. You know, somewhere along the way, it, it became normal for the church to expect to lose. That like, you know, we're here and I don't know why we should bother trying. We're going to only make it through by the skin of our teeth. And then fortunately Jesus is going to come back and whew, man, this world is so bad. That does not sound to me like the story of Jesus was victorious over every principality and power. That sounds to me like they're still in power. And the truth is they're not. The church is not the powerless one here. The powerless people in this equation are the lost. They're the ones that are dead and are rolling along for the lied. And we as the church have the opportunity to get involved and help steer a better course for them. And if we don't, they don't have a lot of hope here. See, what this whole series is meant to show us and to teach us is this. You know, yes, there, we have a natural and spiritual reality. And yes, there are all kinds of, of beings that live in that spiritual reality that are interesting and, and fascinating and, and really cool to study. It's okay, everybody stay with me. I know, I know she's having a hard time. That's fine, okay? <laughs> but at the end of the day, you and I are the ones that hold the keys to the deliverance of our cities. And if we disengage... We're condemning the lost in our cities to keep rolling along with the agenda of these principalities and powers. But if we will roll our sleeves up, and it doesn't have to be complicated. It can be, hey, supervisor, I've noticed we have this really toxic culture in our, in our environment. There's a lot of slander and backbiting and gossip. And I have these ideas for how we could have a little bit more of a positive work environment. That is a spiritual thing that you're stepping in. You're saying, let's undermine a spirit of gossip and slander and let's turn towards honor and upbuilding and encouragement and those things that the Lord stands for. <laughs> Teaching them to observe all that I've commanded of you. All you gotta do is take what's been realized in your life, the good, beautiful things, and spread them around. Hey neighbor, I noticed, it seems like you're having some marriage conflict you're working through. I just want to let you know, I've learned a whole lot about how to love in the last five years. And if you ever want to have a conversation about that, I'd love to talk. It doesn't have to be complicated. But when we do that, when we engage, that's how we actualize the authority that we as the body of Christ are walking with. We disempower the spiritual rebels. And when we do that, the Lord, one by one, is going to begin to take them out. Until he turns everything over to the Father at the end. That's how we're going to change the world with Jesus. Let's pray. Jesus, you are so good. You are so beautiful. You are so amazing. And God, I just ask, Lord, in this whole war of worship, God, would you increasingly empower us for this fight?
Would you show us, God, the simple stuff that's happening around us where things are being bowed down to that aren't you in your ways? Would you give us the courage, God, to simply extend the best ways to live that you've given us into the lives of the people around us? And as we do that, God, would you use us in this natural plus spiritual world that we live in, God, to actualize the authority that you have over every one of these spiritual rebels? We want to participate in the fight, Jesus. We want to change the world with you. God, would you lock our perspective into that where we can see our role, we know our role, we're empowered to step out. Thank you, God, for meeting us here. And thank you, Jesus, that now we get to worship you because I'm pumped about that. (laughs) It's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thanks for listening to the message today. To experience more powerful messages, go to vineyardlive.us or join our Vineyard Live Plus community to view conferences, trainings, and special teachings.